This was a place that was a uh, center of activity for uh, black political empowerment here in Detroit. The cops uh, historically would just issue a ticket to whoever the proprietor was, but in this case, they decided to put everybody in cuffs and march them down the stairs and put them in paddy wagons. And that's the sound you're hearing all over Detroit this evening. In these areas that have been hit by earlier sniping, that one closer. It was one of the deadliest uprisings in our nation's history. It happened in my hometown and I have vivid memories of it. I'm Philip Martin, and this is Heat and Light. We bring you the stories you may not have heard about last century's most pivotal year, 1968. We have a pointing device called a mouse. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? In this episode, We'll transport you to the city of my birth, a city that has become a metaphor for both blight and resurgence, the city of Detroit. In 1968, the streets of the Motor City were still smoldering from the summer before. The riot, the uprising, the rebellion. However you characterize the violence of that period, one thing was sure. Residents were fired up. The spark, as always, was a minor incident. It was routine police action. A raid on what Detroiters call a blind pig, an after-hours bar. The city went up in flames in 1967 and again in 1968, after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. That year, what's known as the Kerner Commission Report concluded what many Detroiters already knew. Police violence was rampant and contributed mightily to the oppressive atmosphere in the city. We're going to talk with Jeffrey Horner of Wayne State University, my alma mater, about the significance of these events for Detroit and the nation. I am absolutely ecstatic to talk with you about 67 and 68, Jeff. How's it going? It's going very well, and uh, thanks again for for asking me. Yeah, no, uh, you are the expert, and uh, you have the memory, as do I, about uh, the events of 1968. One of the things I remember about this so well, I grew up a block away from where the 67 uprising took place and a block away from where the 68 uprising took place. Oh, my gosh. But let's go back to 67 for just a second. Talk about what happened that day, including the role of returning black GIs at the speakeasy, as it was called, the the blind pig. (laughs) So uh, as you point out, there was this speakeasy. There was this blind pig. But this was a place that was a lot more than an after-hours bar. This is maybe one of the urban myths I like to talk about, that this was not, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of kids that were celebrating the return of some Vietnam vets, and they just sort of all squatted in an upstairs area. This was a place that was a uh, center of activity for uh, black political empowerment uh, in the 12th Street area. A sleazy strip of pawn shops and bars, a haven for pimps and prostitutes, junkies and gamblers. There were a number of African-American folks who lived in the 12th and Claremont area. This is a place that was really uh, a refuge for the African-American community and where they could sort of uh, trade information on jobs, trade information on places to live. This was a lot more than a blind pig. Those shots are being fired on 12th Street. Two tanks have just moved into that area. 
the cops uh, historically would just issue a ticket to whoever the proprietor was. But in this case, they decided to put everybody in cuffs and march them down the stairs and put them in paddy wagons. And that took a long time. And uh, by this time, this allowed people to gather on the street. It was hot, uh, middle of the night kind of stuff. And one thing led to another. I'm looking up now, uh, a truck of troopers coming in. I'll also point out that this was this was a peaceful gathering. It was a crowded gathering, too. And I think when the police raided it, they didn't expect the party to be as big as it was. And so there's some conjecture from witnesses that what happened was it took too long to arrest everybody. This area full of snipers tonight. It's pretty well established that the son of the guy who ran, who ran the place uh, was the first one to throw the bottle. The first act of violence was by the son of the guy who, who ran the place. Out of frustration, out of uh, too much police brutality, out of his place being picked on and someone else is not being picked on. That's the sound you're hearing all over Detroit this evening. In these areas that have been hit by earlier sniping, that one closer, 12th Street. I remember seeing the National Guard walking up and down our street on the east side of Detroit, considered one of the city's toughest neighborhoods. Their tanks rolled down Mack Avenue, a main drag where me and my buddies used to play. Now, it's amazing to think of that place, my home, as a war zone. In the mid-1960s, Detroit became part of President Lyndon Johnson's Model Cities program. It was designed to help cities deal with poverty, violence, and lack of adequate housing. So when Detroit, a so-called model city, was the setting for one of the deadliest uprisings in the nation's history, Johnson took swift action. My fellow Americans, we have endured a week such as no nation should live through, a time of violence and tragedy. I am tonight appointing a special advisory commission on civil disorders. He signed an executive order establishing the Kerner Commission, tasked with investigating the causes of the Detroit Uprising of 1967. That report came out in 1968. The Kerner Commission report found, uh, with regard to all of the, the civil disorders that had been occurring in the United States throughout the 1960s, that police brutality was the number one cause. Uh, just barely over four weeks later, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis. And once again, uh, here we were only nine months after the Detroit Rebellion of 1967. Here in Detroit, at least, with regard to uh, Dr. King, uh, we're back into numerous police arrests, injuries, and so forth from more civil unrest. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize that um, 67, though uh, considered the deadliest, 68, uh, there was, of course, another uprising in Detroit following the death of Martin Luther King. Yes, that's, that's absolutely accurate. And at this point, Detroit 
policy officials were still looking for ways to uh, address the community concerns that had gone unaddressed leading up to the rebellion of 1967. And again, it must have been a terrible punch in the gut to once again have more civil unrest after the assassination of Dr. King. Uh, But there it was. And then, of course, a month after Dr. King, there was uh, the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Uh, There was the Vietnam War that was raging on and that was uh, causing its own form of political turmoil uh, on a national level. Jeff, let's zoom out a bit now. What is the significance of the 67 and 68 uh, uprisings? The significance is that we're talking about it 50 years later, trying to figure out what went wrong so we can uh, right the wrongs of the past and perhaps formulate policies that, uh, that better accord with a uh, harmonious society. However, uh, to the extent that any good came out of the Kerner Commission report and to the, very sadly, to the extent that any good came out of uh, the assassination of Dr. King is you probably don't have the, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 passing without either of those events happening. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 removed the final barriers to open and free housing for all people of color and shapes and sizes. That doesn't happen without the loss of Dr. King, and it might have happened uh, with, uh, with, with, with only the release of the Kerner Commission report, which also listed as one of its causes of these uprisings, the very, very extremely limited housing opportunities for blacks uh, in, in, in major cities in the United States. Detroit was, um, it was a manufacturing hub. It was the motor city for a reason. Uh, autos were being made in Detroit and around Detroit. Uh, people were working uh, to the degree that they were being hired in black communities by white manufacturers, by corporations. But you also had the surrounding suburbs where, for example, you actually people actually could not cross the border without facing police violence. Why were race relations in Detroit so tense? Well, the 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 short pithy answer I have for you is that Detroit was a destination city for a lot of folks looking for better lives, moving from the American South, not just black folks, but white folks also. And there's an old saying, and I, you can take this for what it's worth, but I heard this once and I, I'm, I'm going to go with it. But that the difference between Southern racism and Northern racism goes like this. And this is not a broad brush, but this is more just sort of generally speaking. That in the South, if I'm a white person, I don't care if black people live with me. I just care that they live above me. Where in Northern cities, the idea is if I'm white and you're black, I don't care if you live above me, I just don't want you living with me. We were looking for a place to buy a home. We looked at Levittown, and we understood that it was going to be all white, and we were very happy to buy a home here. I moved here. One of the main reasons was because it was a white community. If the Levittown has migrated in hordes of Negroes, which they have a right to come here, but if something had happened that way, Pretty soon, my neighbor will be having a Negro son-in-law or a uh, daughter-in-law. How would that look? When you have a big influx of people, of, of Southern whites and Southern blacks, that are moving to a Northern city for a better life, um, if that isn't managed, if that isn't, um, uh, if, if, if the problems that can devolve from that um, aren't countenanced in the first place, you're going to have trouble. So, so take us to 1968. Uh, in context of the history that you've described, 
What is the significance of the Kerner Report, this report put together by this commission who determined uh, after all was said and done that the main problem, the principal problem, was the police? So out comes the Kerner Commission report in early 1968, and it cites police brutality as the number one cause. The police force was 95% white. What really happened after the release of the Kerner report, even in Detroit, was, you know, you'd think that this would get some traction or some play, that maybe we should do something about police brutality in Detroit. And you know what happened? Detroiters uh, elected a law and order guy, uh, Roman Gribbs, who, when he was running, he said, I will restore law and order to the city of Detroit. And so this led to the stress program, which... Stop, stop the robberies, enjoy safe streets. Man, you know your Detroit history, so that's, that's great. Oh, and yes. <laughs> that was a, 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 an absolutely terrible program involving, basically, the Detroit police were trying to create crimes so that criminals would present themselves and then could be beaten up right then and there, and that was a way to address uh, the law and order problem in Detroit. So in many respects, the release of the Kerner Commission report had no real effect at all on the local police department. Police misconduct in Detroit. Assault by an off-duty DPD officer. You have no right to arrest me. You have no right to arrest me. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars shelled out by taxpayers because officers were accused of crossing the line. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Hey, don't, no, 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 arrest. No. Detroit, for some people, has become both a metaphor for resurgence and and a phoenix-like comeback, but also for blight in the view of others. How do you uh, balance those metaphors? Oh, boy. Um, Well, I I think you've sort of touched on the, the, the important topic here regarding Detroit in 2018, that we have this resurgent downtown where life is happening and people are moving and there's life after 5 p.m., And then uh, in contrast to that, we have the neighborhoods, which I think at least in the mid-1960s, the fact that um, you had these uh, racially discriminated minority groups, African-Americans, who were concentrated in areas of the city. But what's overlooked is that these concentrated areas of the city also served as a great community. And there being community ties and community networks and being able to, to hire your brother-in-law to, uh, to do some work for you. And so the Fair Housing Act, I think, advanced um, the ability of, uh, of minorities to be able to expand their, uh, their housing choices and to perhaps at that time move towards a more integrated and more harmonious society. I'm not sure it worked. What has happened in the intervening 50 years is that we've gotten a lot more diffuse. And as we diffuse our population base through urban sprawl and through uh, pro-growth development policies, you necessarily lose these, these, you know, dense and tightly knit communities. But at the same time, some people manage to, if you will, move on up. How would that be contravened by the uh, fair housing uh, policies of that period? Well, it, it, it doesn't, the Fair Housing Act didn't necessarily contravene or shouldn't have acted to contravene people wanting to move up and out into a, a better school district. What should also have been attempted was to have local policies that would promote more community development ah. so that places, did, places didn't empty out as quickly. 
Of course, I'm not saying that we should reverse the Fair Housing Act and start discriminating again by, by no means. I mean, I, I'm libertarian enough to say I don't care where anybody uh, uh, chooses to live. So, oh, no, no, uh, I, please, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that the Fair no, Housing I, I, Act I, was— I see what you're, what, you're, what, see what you're trying to say. Now, one, one example of, of something that you mentioned it's really interesting is um, the street that I grew up on. You're, you're right. The, the whole notion of community was extraordinarily literal— uh, uh, fish fries on Fridays for the whole neighborhood. People would congregate. Uh, and this, and we're talking about uh, before the uh, things exploded in 67, maybe even a month before. I have a just a very explicit and very clear child's eye view of what was happening on that block. And it was, it was chock full of uh, community. I've gone back to where I grew up uh, over the years many times. Uh, first seeing a house that was abandoned, uh, then seeing um, a house that had turned into a crack gallery, a shooting gallery, uh, and then seeing a stoop, uh, and most recently seeing an empty field. How sad. Of, of all over the course of, uh, of three decades. It's got to be heartbreaking when you go back and see your old neighborhood. I mean, it just has to be heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Uh, it is indeed uh, very, very hard uh, to see. But when you look at Detroit, let's just say you're uh, in a helicopter or even a plane, and you're looking at Detroit from way above. Uh, as someone who f- has focused on planning and society, how do you envisage uh, Detroit in the coming years? I like to say, maybe somewhat dismissively, that downtown can take care of itself. The next big challenge, as I alluded to before, are the neighborhoods. And our current mayor is trying to build what what planners call the 20-minute neighborhood, where you don't need a car, you don't need to have public transit, but that you have these nodes of activity. They don't have to be full of high-rises, but they have to be places where you can get you know fresh food, where you can drop off your dry cleaning, and you need to be able to walk there. Well, Jeff, let me ask you this. Why did you decide uh, to, to study these tensions 67, 68, and 50 years later? Oh, boy. Um, well, you know, I, I don't know if there, I, there was ever a eureka moment um, when I decided to do this. Um, right after I started teaching here, this is about 2000, 2001, I came across this videotape that some guy about our age picked up a video camera in about 2000, 2001 and produced his own movie called uh, The 1967 Detroit Riots, A Community Speaks. He had some really interesting things to say, and he was smart enough to pick up this video camera and to go and talk to survivors, to witnesses who were there. Someone said they're going to set the place on fire. So we rushed down there, and he had his gun. And he told me if I didn't get out of the way, he's going to shoot me too. Some large group of civilian snipers uh, loose in the city which is an absolute lie. It just simply did not occur in that fashion at all. They were setting things on fire. The Chronicle took an immediate stand. Mr. Quinn sent all of us out into the neighborhoods to do what we could. That would have happened, could have happened anywhere. It just so happened to have... This got me really interested in the events of 1967. Um, so I, I'd been talking about this kind of stuff in my classroom and talking about the plight of blacks and the, uh, the loss of industry in Detroit uh, that affected not just blacks, but Middle Eastern folks and um, Latin American folks. Uh, and, you know, students want to know this stuff. And it's, it's, it's something when, when you get old like me, you assume that everyone has some knowledge of this. But uh, this, I think, brings a richness, a more, a more richness to understanding of all people uh, and all backgrounds of the causes of civil insurrections. What keeps you in Detroit, Jeff? What, you're, 
you are so well informed on, on a lot of De- Detroit's flaws and in the context of its history. Uh, but, but there must be something that keeps you here. <laughs> well, uh, I have elderly parents, and frankly, I have I have had a pretty good gig at Wayne State University, and, and like it here very much. And so, there's there's I I guess Philip, I haven't had any offers. I've had no offers. <laughs> and what do you, what do you what do you what do you love about Detroit? What I love about Detroit, what I love it about the first thing that comes to mind about Detroit is the utter lack of pretense. Detroit has, I think, the right mix of not just friendliness, but, um, you know, unassumingness for a large city. Detroit having this do-it-yourself mentality and this we're all, you know, we're all tough Detroiters, that there's sort of this, this, this breakdown of a class system. And with my, I have a lot of students in my classroom, suburban and from the city, and there's just no pretentiousness. There's no one that's trying to, trying to, to put on airs or anything else. And I guess as I get older, I, I guess my my bullshit meter is uh, is a little more sensitive. And Detroit Detroit is a place where it, it rarely goes off. As one fellow Detroiter, to another Detroiter, Jeff, that was great. Thank you again, Jeffrey Horner. Folks is a senior lecturer in urban studies at Wayne State University, my alma mater, and a wealth of information about a city that is both on the rise and still looking backwards to try to inform its future. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Philip. Thanks for listening to this episode of Heat and Light. Follow us on Twitter at HeatLightPod, and please subscribe if you like what we're doing. Next time, we'll tell you the origin story of Silicon Valley, of all places. Heat and Light is a production of The Conversation U.S., Learn more about us at heatlightpod.com or check the show notes. Our show is produced and engineered by Maria Muriel. Our associate producer is Jonathan Gang. And our executive producer is Maria Balenska. Our theme music is by Kenny Kusiak. Go ahead, Kenny. I'm Philip Martin. See you next time. Hi, I'm Maria Muriel. I'm the producer of Heat and Light, and I wanted to take a second and ask you for two things, but also give you something in return. So listen up. Thing number one, we want to hear your stories. Since we released our first episode on the student protest movement of 1968, we've been getting lots of comments from listeners sharing their memories or their family connections to things that happened that year. And we want to hear more. So if you grew up in 1968 Detroit, or if your mother protested the Miss America pageant that year, or if you remember seeing the Star Trek kiss on television, send us a voicemail at 617-329-5248. Include your name, your phone number, and your 1968 story. If enough of you call in, we'll compile your messages into a bonus episode at the end of our season. The number again is 617-329-5248. We can't wait to hear from you. And now this is the second thing. I just want to ask you, in case voicemails aren't your thing, please leave us a review. Tell us what you like about the show, and please share it with your friends. And in return, this is where we give you something. Because we appreciate you loyal listeners, we're giving away 25 Heat and Light t-shirts. And these are actually good shirts that you want to wear in public. So if you're interested, go to heatlightpod.com forward slash contest to enter for your chance to win. That's all for me. Thank you for listening.